Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Lathes. Chris can't get enough of them, and George Daniels can't speak highly enough about them. Welcome to part four in our series on George Daniels' book, Watchmaking. And this show, we will be talking all about lathes. So in the, the chapter, Daniels opens things up, speaking of all the myriad ways that uh, a watchmaker can use a lathe. To quote him, he actually calls the lathe the most versatile of all the machine tools used by the watchmaker. The lathe is really the master tool. It is the tool that all other machine tools can be made from, and it is the only machine tool that can make itself. Hmm. It is so critical for any serious work that's being done in the watch world. Uh, and even even beyond just turning, you can use it for doing doing more than just turning, obviously. You can also use it for doing milling and, and uh, some other shaping operations as well. So that's why it's such a critical tool in the shop. And if you can only have one serious tool in the shop, you know, forget the jig borer, forget the mill, forget the all these other fancy machines, uh, wire EDM, if you have a good lathe, you can build yourself a watch. And, you know, that's something that you just cannot do with any other machine. And that is literally the foundation of the Struthers 248 project. Yeah, yeah. And ironically, if you if you look at their, their shop, they've actually built a couple of interesting machines, uh, including a sensitive drill out of an old lathe. Uh, so they've actually converted lathes into other things. And I've done the same thing. I've got a lathe, a watchmaker's lathe on my plant straight line engine that I use as a pencil chuck. And that's what I use for doing my pens and uh, and other cylindrical objects that I'm engine turning. So uh, they, they're incredibly versatile and uh, they can be used for uh, unbelievable range of, of work. And as I said, if I could only have one machine in my shop, uh, it would absolutely be the lathe. It was one of my first serious purchases in the shop, and uh, when I've gotten rid of a bunch of machines, it has always been a machine that's um, that's been available to me. I've always made sure that I've had a, at least one or two lathes in good working order in my shop. Truly is a, a wide range of, of things that you can do with a lathe, uh, and Daniels actually goes on to, to list a bunch of those early on. And uh, just to run through those, he, he mentions live turning, dead center turning, Uprighting, grinding, lapping, milling, slitting, dividing, and polishing. And I think it might be worthwhile just uh, touching on each of those briefly, digging a little bit into what each of those operations actually is, who might not be familiar with those terms. So live turning, that's that's pretty straightforward. How would you how would you define live turning, Chris? Yeah, live turning is is what most people are used to when they've seen a lathe. It has uh, a spindle typically which has some kind of work holding tool on it, whether it's a collet or a chuck of some sort. And it's actually, it's grabbed onto the part and it is spinning the part that you're turning inside of it. So the, a live turn is, is done like that. And if you need extra support on the back end, you may have a tailstock that is supporting the back end of the workpiece. So if it happens to be a particularly long workpiece, uh, or a particularly narrow workpiece, then you may have a uh, a tailstock of some sort, maybe using a dead center or a live center to support it. If it's a dead center, then it's just a, a cone which is holding it there and it doesn't rotate. A live center actually has bearing in it so that it spins with the part. Uh, if you can get a good um, tailstock with a good live center in it, it is a huge upgrade from a dead center. Most people are used to to seeing a lathe being used as a live turning lathe. Mm -hmm. And then dead center turning is essentially taking what you've already mentioned there, which with having the dead center in the tailstock, you can actually throw a dead center on the, the headstock as well and then turn your piece by hand the old school way, the way that uh, traditional watchmakers 150, 200 years ago in England may have turned an item between centers. And when you're doing that, you're know that you are turning perfectly concentrically because you have your piece supported between two conical ends and you're turning the piece itself uh, on those centers. 
So you get very precise motion that way. Uh, but one of the, the downsides of, of turning between centers on, on, say, a turns the way that old school watchmakers would have with a, a bow um, run by hand is that you're turning the piece backwards and forwards. So you're only cutting on, on one of those motions. It's quite a juggling act uh, for, your, for your hands. It requires quite a bit of dexterity and concentration and focus to be able to do that well. Uh, so you're actually able to turn quite a bit faster with uh, using the live headstock and a live tailstock. Well, the tailstock doesn't matter as much, but you're able to always be turning in one direction uh, as you're working with those doing live turning. Well, one thing I will say is that uh, you don't have to use uh, hand-powered turns to do uh, dead center turning. Uh, I do it regularly on my powered lathes. The keys to dead center turning are that you put uh, a piece of material in the headstock and you turn, typically you turn a 60 degree cone on it. And because you're turning it in the headstock, it is completely concentric to the headstock of the of the machine. Even the best lathes have a little bit of run out in that headstock. And if you turn a new cone on that piece on your on your center then it's going to be perfectly concentric with your headstock and then if you've got a a dead center in your tailstock then again you've got a cone that was turned specifically for it you've configured it and you you've you've set it up for the tailstock so that it's it's perfectly in line with your headstock and then you mount the workpiece in between your two centers and typically you use a uh, what's called a dog to drive the workpiece. So it's um, it's a little funky shaped piece. We'll, uh, we'll put a photo in the show notes for it, uh, which gets connected to the workpiece itself. And that's what drives it. You can use a powered lathe when you're doing dead center turning just fine. And uh, and it does work OK. So you don't have to do the, the juggling act with a hand powered lathe. And if you need to do absolutely perfect turning with no run out at all particularly when you're doing very very fine uh, detailed work and you have to flip the piece back and forth it, doing it on dead set between dead centers is absolutely critical it's the really the only way you can uh, you can be guaranteed that you're actually turning something completely concentric this is a fantastic insight not something i've ever done before so what's the smallest mm-hmm. piece you've you've turned using dead centers on a, a powered drive well, I've done a I've done a replacement staff for a balance on one. Nicely done. Yeah, so you can you can do it. There's a couple of tricks to it. It's this isn't really the place to get into, but maybe it's something we'll talk about in a future episode. But ninety percent of machining is really the art of work holding, and how you hold the piece that you need to work on without having problems. And so, with something like that, instead of using a cone which comes out to a point you can actually put sort of an inverted cone into the tip of your your dead center and that allows you to support the piece in a way that uh, maybe takes the stress off of let's say the very very fine pivot that's on the end of it so there's a couple of things that you can do to to uh, sort of get around some of the problems that you have when it comes to work holding a really really delicate piece like that which has a very very fine pivot on it so would this have been for a pocket watch or a, a wrist watch? Uh, this was for a pocket watch, yeah. This was for a Hamilton 992B, I think it was. Right. Did you custom make the dog for that, or were you able to source one small enough? Oh, no, I just made the dog for it. It's it's okay. relatively simple yeah. to make um, yeah, make something that size. It's, uh, it's not, And honestly, finding a dog small enough to be able to work comfortably on that is tough. Most of those are sort of custom built. So, yeah, that mm-hmm. was something I had to make myself. Yeah, because anytime I've I've worked on uh, a staff between centers, I don't actually use a a, a dog. On I have an offset dog with mm. uh, a an arm that comes off of it that goes into that. It's an attachment that almost looks like a, a fish that you put onto the the balance staff, and then that mm-hmm. arm that's coming off of the dog links into that, and then uh, drives that back and forth using a hand part. But again, I've never turned any watch parts uh, powered between dead centers that's something I'll, I'll have to try yeah it's a it's significantly easier to do anytime you're you're using any kind of a hand-powered lathe or a pole lathe uh, it, it gets a little challenging actually i had a chance uh, this i guess this past weekend to 
uh, try a pole lathe. And uh, this was one that was set up at a, at a maker event. Um, the, the folks from Lee Valley had set up a booth at this maker event. And uh, one of the people there had a, a bow lathe that he had built in his shop and he actually brought it out to the event. So that was, uh, that was a little bit of fun to, uh, to play with. Now, we were turning green poplar uh, on it. So it was, uh, it was very wet and it was, uh, it was, I'm not used to turning green wood on a, on a lathe. It's a very different experience than turning dry wood, but it was, uh, it was definitely a lot of fun, but it's, it is challenging because you do have to think about the fact that the piece is turning backwards for half of the cycle. And so you don't want to be pushing on the piece uh, or presenting the tool on the piece, but then if you're not careful, you'll get weird interrupted cuts if you're not presenting the piece properly afterwards. So anyways, it's uh, it was an interesting challenge, but it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It'll quickly dull your, your cutting edge as well, running mm-hmm. the, the piece in the wrong direction against it. Next up is uprighting, which is essentially the process of placing pivot holes in the plates of a timepiece so that the arbors that the pivots themselves are, are attached to run perpendicularly between the the plates of the watch. So, for instance, you would mount the, the main plate uh, in a, a mandrel with some dogs and get that perfectly centered over the hole and then screw the, the bridge in place over top of that so that you know you are then starting your, your hole that will be accepting the jewel perfectly centered and in line with the the accompanying hole in the the plate itself. And the next up is is grinding, which is pretty straightforward. Yeah, grinding is something which is in a similar vein to turning, but it's often being done on hardened material, so some material that's maybe difficult to turn uh, because it is it is considerably harder than it um, uh, than the sort of the soft version of it. So. You might do this after you've hardened a piece of uh, of stock. So uh, I've used it for pivots on tools, or sometimes on um, punches and things like that, where you you turn, do your rough turning, then you harden it, and then you have to sort of turn the piece to the final dimensions. And trying to find cutters that will get into the dig into that uh, material can be a little bit challenging. So I um, I'll occasionally do some grinding on the lathe now i don't like to do it because it makes an absolute mess and all that grinding dust is really really bad for your lathe so i try to avoid doing grinding on a lathe and there's only a couple of lathes that i'm really willing to do it on just because i'm not too concerned with um with the what happens to them but uh, certainly my nicer lathes i would never even consider doing grinding on Uh, but what you do get out of it is a very very nice finish a way of shaping very hard material. And you get, if you do it properly, you will get extremely close tolerances on the work that you're doing. So it can be an excellent way of getting your hardened work pieces to the exact size and, uh, and shape that you need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my only comment with regards to, to grinding is just never do it on your, your watchmaker's lathe unless it's a one that is specifically dedicated for that purpose, or even one of your, your machinist's lathes or, or toolmaker's lathes. Uh, I use uh, what some people call it a dental lathe for any sort of grinding work, or something that is close kin to a, a dental lathe, which is essentially not far off from the benchtop grinder that, that you'd find in a, a hardware store. It's closer in relation to, to that than what you would think of as a, a watchmaker's lathe or, or a toolmaker's lathe. At this point of the of the lathes that I've got, my big South Bend lathe is about the only thing I'd be willing to actually sacrifice with a grinder because I'm I'm not too concerned with with what happens to that lathe. It's been beat up enough over the years that uh, a little bit of grinding dust isn't gonna isn't gonna kill it. But all my other lathes are all precision lathes, and there's no way I would allow grinding anywhere near them. And similar to grinding, but on a much finer level, we have lapping, which is essentially applying a flat mirrored finish to a surface so for instance the facets on a diamond are all lapped on a, on a diamond lap and you can get a, a very nice clean finish on a, a graver that you might be using to cut on a lathe by lapping that as well and then the sides of some watch cases or case backs are often lapped particularly on high-end pieces uh, so that's similar 
to grinding. You just generally will have a, a flat disc mounted in a, a lathe. Again, not something I would necessarily recommend doing on a watchmaker's lathe unless it's dedicated for that purpose. But you can get very fine, very flat finishes with that technique. Yeah, lapping can be used for a number of different reasons. Um, obviously, flat surfaces, lapping something like the head of a screw is a great way to get a black polish on on a screw head. I also have used it on a number of occasions with uh, cylindrical lapping. So both the OD, the outside diameter, and the inside diameter parts where you're trying to get a perfect fit. And you can um, you can set up a lap to do that kind of work. Uh, so for instance, when I was making the... Uh, the die that I use for deep drawing some of my pen caps, I wanted to have uh, the exact size and shape that I wanted in there, and it needed to be perfectly smooth. So in that case, I went off and um, and lapped those surfaces. And uh, it's extremely time-consuming, but when it comes out right, it is absolutely perfect. It's a beautiful mirror finish mm-hmm. that, that you uh, that you get out of it. And one watch brand that uh, deserves particular mention in, in this respect is is Grand Seiko, who I've really taken this to a, a level that I would say is essentially unmatched by any Swiss brand in terms of, of casework when it comes to lapping case parts. And I should say dial parts as well and, and hands. Uh, they really have per- perfected this art. And uh, the craftsmen who excel at it have poured themselves into it for for decades. And uh, in Japanese, uh, it's the they they call it zaratsu. They really have brought that to a, a level that I haven't seen really matched anywhere else in the, the watch world in terms of the the scale and level of execution. Okay, that's I. I haven't. Um, I didn't realize that that's what they were doing with it, but it makes sense. Uh, trying to get anytime you want to get a great finish on something and extremely tight tolerances, uh, lapping is the way to go. Uh, because while grinding will allow you to get to close tolerances and it will uh, will allow you to grind on very very hard materials, it doesn't necessarily get you the surface finish you want. Uh, it will often leave a nice surface finish, but it will not leave a mirror finish. So lapping is ideal for that. So I. I Makes sense that they would do that on case parts and, and dials and things like that. And then the next operation that, that Daniels mentions is milling. And we could probably dedicate it an entire episode <laughs> just to milling, and I'm sure later on uh, we will. Uh, but for purposes of, of this discussion, uh, what are some of the ways that, that you've milled on a lathe before, Chris? Yeah, one of the key differences with between a lathe and a mill is in a lathe typically the work part, the work piece itself is what's rotating in the headstock and is then being turned with usually a stationary cutter. Uh, In a mill, those roles are reversed. So typically the tool is spinning in the headstock and the work piece is being held in in some kind of a stationary way. Uh, So it's not, it's not turning necessarily. Um, so that's that's typically the difference between a mill and a lathe, or you know, sort of at a fundamental level. And in the case of using a lathe as a mill, uh, what you'll end up doing is you'll hold a cutter often in the headstock, so where the the part would normally go, and it will start spinning. And then you will use a milling attachment on the um, on the carriage of the lathe. And then you can move the workpiece that you're milling. So that's that's the typical way that somebody would mill on a lathe. Uh, you can also mill with the part in the headstock, uh, but typically there it's not spinning. You're often using it as an index. So uh, a lot of watchmakers' lathes actually have an index plate on the back of them. Usually it has 60 holes on it, and it allows you to then index based on those 60 holes. So you could do... You know, every you could do a third of a rotation. You could do whatever combination you wanted, and was necessary. In that case, you're going to use a spindle mounted on the milling attachment, and that spindle is going to be driven separately, and will have a turning cutter. This is actually very similar to what's being done with a lot of ornamental turning on a rose engine. Uh, when you look at the old ornamental lathes, like the Holtzaffels, 
those lathes were actually being used primarily for indexing on the headstock. And then they had a live tool cutter in the carriage. And um, that was then being used to modify the workpiece through uh, through a series of indexing maneuvers and whatnot. Uh, so you, there's there's a lot of flexibility that you can do like that if you have your machine set up to to do it properly, and um, as you say, milling in a lathe is I could do a podcast series entirely on milling in a lathe. Uh, it there are a lot of a lot of options there, and this is why you can use the lathe to basically rebuild itself, uh, because all of those milling operations that you would need typically to be able to make a lathe, uh, you can actually do any lathe itself. So it's certainly something that you have to get your head around the first time you see it but uh, there there are a lot of options available for milling in the lathe and the the pulley setup you'd use to to turn a, a cutter in the the tailstock is demonstrated in figure 3 in Daniel's book in that particular figure he doesn't actually have it hooked up to a cutter the the end of of the believe he recommends using leather strapping. So the end of the leather strapping in this particular illustration is not actually hooked up to anything. It's just dangling there in the air. And then in, in terms of milling uh, using the the cross slider or the carriage, uh, you can essentially think of it uh, in terms of adding another axis to the, the carriage. So if you consider the, the cross slide itself to have an x-axis and a z-axis to go in and out, you would then add a y-axis to that that you would actually attach your, your part to, and then that you would bring up to your cutter that is spinning in the headstock of the lathe. Yeah, so in this case, that um, that overhead drive is not going to be used for a tool in the tailstock. That's going to be a tool mounted somewhere else. Uh, you would almost never put a spinning tool in the tailstock because at that point, you may as well just hold that tool stationary and turn the part in the lathe's headstock. Uh, so you're actually going to use that to drive a different tool that's mounted somewhere else, a different spindle that's mounted somewhere else. Yeah, that's a great point. Well observed. It'd be more than likely used to put a cutter uh, for cutting wheels uh, in the particular orientation that those pulleys are set up. That is correct. And would actually match in line with the fact that there is a dividing head on that particular lathe as well. So that, that setup is, is more attuned to cutting uh, or dividing, uh, which is another of the items that uh, Daniels mentions in his list. And right before dividing is, is slitting, which is very straightforward. It's essentially just cutting a channel into a piece. So you would have a very specialized cutter or a cutter of a very particular shape in order to cut a slit into an object that is rotating in the headstock. And then finally, to wrap things up, Daniels mentions polishing, which, as we've alluded to with grinding and lapping, is not something you're going to want to do on any lathe that you're using for any sort of precision work. You're more than likely going to want to use a a lathe dedicated particularly for polishing. And again, in this case, it would be usually on a, a dental lathe or a, a polishing lathe made specifically for that uh, with the, the appropriate ventilation system to match as well, just to protect your own lungs and, and health and safety. Now, when it comes to lathes, there really is no one-size-fits-all for lathes, which is one of the many reasons why I have more than one of them. And a lathe is really geared towards a particular purpose. Uh, a lathe that I would use for doing fine watch work is not something that I would make large tooling on, for instance. And so you really want to look at a lathe that is dedicated for the type of work that you're going to do. Uh, in terms of watch work, one of the keys that you're looking for is high precision, and that manifests in a few different ways. Uh, the first is that the headstock itself needs to be very accurate. If you buy a large lathe uh, like for instance, uh, my my large South Bend lathe is not designed for doing precision watch work. It it works perfectly well for uh, turning large diameter work. I can turn pieces up to sixteen inches in diameter on it. Uh, I could turn you know a drive shaft for a tractor on it without any effort. 
So it's it's really geared towards turning large pieces, um, especially heavy heavy materials. So I can take very very heavy cuts out of a, out of a piece of steel, for instance. And it's designed to you know to be able to do that that heavy kind of work. So I use it a lot for building tools. Uh, if I'm building dies and punches for my deep drawing equipment, that's the lathe that I'm going to go to. If I need to build a part for another lathe or for my mill or something like that, that's the machine that I'm going to go to to build my tooling. So it's typically referred to as a toolmaker's lathe. Now, it's certainly not a large lathe as machinist lathes go, uh, but it's certainly much larger than anything you're you're typically going to run into in a in a watch workshop. So that's appropriate for working on as a toolmaker's lathe. Something that I'm going to work on for doing watch work, uh, so let's say something like my Derbyshire lathe, uh, it's a 10 millimeter lathe, and we'll we'll get into what that means in a minute, um, but it has a very high precision headstock on it. The runout, which is the amount of variance that you're going to get in the spindle as it rotates, is very, very low. On that one, it's below a tenth of a thousandth of an inch in runout, uh, so if you take a part from that 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 lathe, you turn it, and then you take it out and remount it again, you're going to have a variance of no more than about a tenth of a thousandth of an inch, which is very, very small. Now, that's not perfect, so there are circumstances where it's still too much. But for most of the work that I'm going to do in most situations, uh, it's more than accurate enough to be able to do the work that I want to do. So... Precision is an extremely important thing that you're looking for when it comes to buying a lathe for watchmaking. Now, when it comes to the types of lathes that you're typically going to see, uh, the most common lathes that are out there that watchmakers will use are an 8mm lathe, and that's referring to the size of collet that the watchmaker's lathe handles. An 8mm lathe, that's the size of the collet that it's holding, and that's the outside diameter of the actual collet itself. Uh, the typical, I think the, the largest through-hole that an 8mm collet can handle is about 6mm. And so that means that you can put a piece of steel up to 6mm in diameter straight through the headstock and be able to hold it. The collets allow you to hold pieces very, very accurately. Uh, you typically need a large number of collets because there's not a large range of diameters that they can hold. And the 8mm lathe just happens to be the most common lathe that, that's out there for watchmakers. So they're very easy to find. They're easy to find parts for. They're easy to find collets for. Uh, so it, it's a it's sort of a Goldilocks size for watchmakers' lathes. You can get ones with smaller collets. Uh, I have a six millimeter uh, watchmaker's lathe, which is an absolute nightmare because there are no collets out there for it. They're impossible to find. Uh, and because of the smaller sized collet, you then also have a limitation on how large of a piece you can actually fit in the collet. And then I also have my Derbyshire, which is a 10 millimeter collet. So that's a larger one. And that I can actually handle an 8mm piece of material through the headstock and be able to hold it um, accurately and comfortably. And the 10mm lathe is nice. It, it gives me a little bit of extra space. It also has a little bit more room uh, in, the, um, in what I can turn in terms of its maximum diameter. And uh, it's sort of a nice size lathe without needing to go up to a tool room lathe for being able to or a toolmaker's lathe for being able to do uh, larger work. So I can do case work on it. I can also do some clock work on it if I need to. Uh, so the 10 millimeter lathe is a nice size for that. Uh, but again, like the six millimeter lathe, it's not as common as the eight millimeter lathe. And therefore it's difficult to get parts for it. Uh, collets are certainly more expensive and far more difficult to get a hold of. Additional components, um, accessories, that kind of thing for it are certainly more difficult to get a hold of. So uh, when you're out there looking for a lathe for watchmaking, uh, something in the 8 millimeter size is perfect for, for most of what people are doing with watchmaking. Mm -hmm. And I would include clockmakers in that as well. Just about any house clock out there, you could 
repivot or burnish the pivots on a wheel using an, an eight millimeter lathe without issue. I've done it to dozens and, and dozens of of wheels and clocks, to, despite not working a whole lot on clocks. And it's, it's something I, I actively try and avoid. Now, if you are going to if you're going to get into this um, into the industry and you're you're going out there and looking at what the uh, the industry is working on, uh, pretty much everybody in the industry has uh, standardized on the Shoblin 102, sometimes the Shoblin 70, as mm-hmm. their sort of standard lathes. But I like to live in a house, and the Shoblin 102 is a little more expensive than my house, so. You know, when I had a choice between whether I buy a uh, a lathe or um, or buy a house, I I thought you know it'd be nice to live in a house instead. So um, I'm not going to buy a, a brand new Shoblin 102 anytime soon because they are outrageously expensive. Uh, but it is the gold standard that's uh, that's used in the watch world, and and that's what uh, all the serious people use these days is a, a Shoblin 102. Mm-hmm. It'll be much easier to to find parts and components for a 102 and various adapters and, and collets and whatnot. And they're also much easier to come by used, although Daniels does advise against purchasing used. But uh, as as you mentioned, Chris, it can be very expensive to, to get into a brand new lathe for the purposes of watchmaking. One upside of the, the Shoblin 70, despite it being much harder to come by used, is that the collets are interchangeable with the ACRA F1, which is a, a milling machine. So it's nice to be able to swap back and forth between the two in a watchmaking space or environment. But it, again, you're going to be harder pressed to, to come by uh, different attachments and, and whatnot for it compared to the 102. Absolutely. It is it is certainly a... Uh, uh, the, the 70 is a really nice size lathe and... In terms of finding them used, if you happen to be in uh, Europe, you'll find it a little bit easier to find the uh, these machines used and the and um, various parts for them, add-on stuff for them used. It is certainly worthwhile uh, if you're if you're in different parts of the world to look at getting uh, getting some of the stuff used because it is a little bit easier to find the stuff. And another thing that Daniel's touches on is drive control. So that is. Uh limiting the the rate of speed on the actual motor that it is turning or, or powering your lathe. Uh, most watchmakers' lathes are, are powered by uh, relatively underpowered motors compared to what you would find for, for most lathes out there. And uh, mine, I don't even think you could, could buy one uh, anymore. I, I picked it up years and years ago from a uh, a watchmaker who was, was closing up shop uh, for the the one that I use most often. Actually, all, all of my lathes are, are from watchmakers who are unfortunately now deceased. I, I have three watchmakers lathes uh, with accompanying motors. And with each one, I use a, a foot pedal, uh, which gives you some rate uh, of, of control over how fast the lathe itself is turning without having to involve your hands. And I've also put together a, a rheostat that I can put in between the foot pedal uh, and the motor because none of these motors themselves have a speed control built into them. Uh, And that has been a a nice uh, added touch as well. So you can set your max RPM with that. And then you have that basically anywhere from zero to that maximum ceiling that you've set using the foot pedal. And uh, I find that that combination quite nice. And I've also done a setup before on a, a watchmaker's lathe using a, a bench top lathe from Fordham or a bench motor, uh, which is essentially a, a small polishing machine and just rigged up a pulley on that. And that does have the, the variable speed built into it. So you would not need to, to set up a, a rheostat between that and the, the foot pedal. And uh, that works quite nicely as well. Variable speed is extremely important. In fact, I think it's absolutely an absolute must. You, I would never own a lathe of any kind without uh, without variable speed at this point. Uh, I my South Bend lathe has uh, step pulleys, and uh, I'm in the process of upgrading my motor and that so that I can do variable speed through a um, through a VFD controller. But um, I, I'm not 
not a particularly big fan of foot pedals. And uh, I, I know that Daniels gives a couple of reasons and justifications for how he uses them, but um, I think that they cause more problems in the long run than they're probably worth. On uh, cutting implements or gravers, I use exclusively carbide gravers, the only exception being uh, I will occasionally bust out a ruby graver for getting a very, very fine finish on uh, the the final steps there of a cut, but it ships uh, far more easily than a a tungsten carbide graver does, and and carbide will also chip easily if you are not um, careful with it or using it appropriately. Uh, but absolutely, one hundred percent carbide gravers all the way. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't do anything with high speed steel anymore for this kind of work for for lathe tools, except for now. Even I was gonna say I was, uh, I've I've made the occasional shaped like custom shaped tool for turning things, but even then, most of the time these days, I I custom grind something out of carbide. I don't even bother with high speed steel for doing custom shapes. Uh, the only exception to the, my carbide tooling for lathes is that I do also use diamond tools for a number of things um, just because they I'm getting better finishes off of them or I'm getting significantly longer wear life out of the diamond tools than I do out of the carbide. Uh, but I don't um, yeah, I don't use any any high speed steel on my on these lathe tools. The only place I would consider it would be on my biggest lathe and you know if I'm turning something there, it it has a limit of about I think about twelve or thirteen hundred RPM on my largest lathe, and that's just not fast enough to turn effectively with a lot of carbide at, at depending on the material and the and the diameter part. So in that case, I will occasionally pull out a a, a high speed tool for that, but even then, it's pretty rare. I I tend to uh, tend to use carbide for everything. So for the diamond tools, are these the the lozenge shaped? pieces that you can pop in and out and, and of a, a tool holder very quickly just with a hex key. Yeah. So with, uh, with tooling, you'll find there's a bunch of different ways of getting tooling and um, some of them work better in different circumstances than others. Uh, so I prefer for most of the, the size of tooling that we're dealing with here for watchmaking of using a brazed carbide tool. So this is a steel shaft that has a piece of tungsten carbide that's been soldered, hard soldered onto the the steel shaft. And then from there, it's um, ground and polished and and turned into the tool that you want. So that's that's probably the most common way of doing it. And for this kind of application, that's certainly the probably the best way of getting tooling. Um, you can also get tool holders which have inserts. And those inserts are what are made out of carbide. And this is typical in machine, you know, sort of machining tools, like larger machining tools, uh, particularly CNC machines, where you want to be able to quickly replace a dull cutter. And uh, so these are indexed cutters. You don't have to change the tool holder at all. You just um, unscrew the, um, the little insert from it and then drop in a new insert. But the geometry on those inserts, for the most part, is really not appropriate for this kind of work. You really need to be working on larger pieces. They typically require a minimum depth of cut that far exceeds anything that you would be doing on a, on a watchmaker's lathe. So even the smallest of those insert tooling, uh, it looks tempting. You can buy a lot of them cheap from you know, very place, various places in Asia. Uh, you know, get them on eBay and they look tempting because they're like, oh, I could just swap out those um, those inserts. But I would recommend staying away from insert tooling for this kind of work. You typically want to use the brazed carbide ones. Uh, now, in my case, the exception to that is the diamond tooling. So yes, those are they're sort of lozenge-shaped uh, inserts that uh, go into my uh, my tool holders and they have a small piece of diamond that's been uh, shaped and polished and uh, hard soldered again onto the steel shank uh, of the insert itself, and uh, and those are great. Uh, I have I've had uh, very good luck with them. They're not inexpensive, but they tend to run forever as long as you don't crash them into a machine and and break them, uh, because obviously they are fragile. Sounds like something you may have, may have some experience with. Or... <laughs> yeah, maybe once or twice. Um, this is the the dangers <laughs> of CNC equipment. Uh, as Rich likes to say, uh, CNC machines are are trying to kill you. 
and uh, they have a mind of their own. When you have expensive tooling on them, they tend to have a habit of, of crashing into things they're not supposed to. So um, I've broken a number of inserts doing that sort of thing. And I should say as well, when it comes to carbide, not all carbide is created equal. There are certainly different qualities of carbide out there. And typically the cheapest carbide is not worth your time. It's sort of a false economy trying to buy cheap carbide tooling. Uh, in my experience, the best carbide tooling I have found so far is the brand Micro 100. They have a very, very nice, um, very tight-grained carbide that um, is very consistent in its, uh, its makeup. You can polish them to a very, very high degree, and, uh, and I've had very, very high consistency with them. I know there are some other companies out there that do micro-grain carbide tooling as well. Uh, they happen to be the one that I've found that has a great selection of different tools and different shapes and sizes for me, and I have never gone wrong with their tooling. So if you're ever looking for brazed carbide tooling that is, um, is really worth investing in for this kind of work, the Micro 100 stuff is perfect. At the scale that we're working at and the volume we're working at, uh, those cutters last forever. Uh, you can keep polishing them and, and uh, they, they do go for quite a while. So you're really not saving a lot of money by going with cheap carbide because you're just going to, it's going to be frustrating. You're not going to be able to polish it as well. And it, it may have inconsistencies in it that, uh, that are frustrating when it comes to getting good quality surfaces out of the cutting surfaces out of them. On the steel engraver note for, for just a moment, uh, one thing I, I did appreciate Daniel's touching upon is uh, the way that, that some people will, will look back on, on history with rose-colored glasses and talk about how the steel was, was better back in the day, and then I found his, his perspective on this to, to be very insightful and, and astute as to why watchmakers were, were more than likely wrong in, in their, their thinking uh, back on on days of old. Yeah, so Daniel says, it is frequently said by watchmakers that one can no longer obtain carbon steel gravers of the quality used by the hand watch finishers of old. This probably accounts for the increasing use of high-speed steel substitutes. Undoubtedly, there is a decline in the number of manufacturers of carbon steel gravers as a result of the decline of hand watchmaking. Consequently, those who still require high-quality gravers have a more limited choice and are therefore likely to be disappointed. On the other hand, the watchmakers of old used the turns and rotated the work with a bow. This method is slower than turning in the lathe and inevitably does not work the graver so hard. It is probable that imper imperfect sharpening of the graver also contributes to the belief that the steel is inferior. And this is important to note, um, and this is why you know something like my South Bend lathe, when it was made, a high you know the sort of the high RPM of twelve hundred RPM is was was completely appropriate. They were only using high speed steel tools at the time, and you wouldn't have wanted to turn a piece more than twelve hundred RPM. Uh, you would burn your your high speed steel t uh, tooling out. Uh, but with the advent of carbide tooling. 1200 RPM is just not very fast. And in fact, for a toolmaker's lathe, if I were buying a new toolmaker's lathe today, I wouldn't consider buying one that could do less than sort of 3000, 3500 RPM at its top speed. And, uh, and I would be doing a fair bit of turning sort of above 2000 RPM. So these, these older lathes that people were using, uh, as, as he says, the turns where, where people are using a hand bow to, to turn it. At that point, carbon steel, high carbon steel tools are completely appropriate. But once you start getting into a a modern lathe or a more modern lathe, something that's powered by a motor, you're typically going to be turning at higher speeds, and uh, a, a carbon steel tool is not going to be appropriate for that. If you do want to look up a little bit more about what's appropriate in terms of speeds and feeds when it comes to cutting, I recommend looking at the Machinery's Handbook. It's a bit daunting when you first look at it. It's this massive tome that has been added to and edited over the last hundred or so years. And it is the Bible for machinists. Uh, it has calculations and information about just about anything that a, a toolmaker or a machinist could, uh, could possibly be interested in. And one of the most important parts of it is the feeds and speeds chart which 
has a breakdown of different materials, different machining operations. Uh, so for instance, you can look at what, uh, let's say, a, a tool steel in a lathe at a certain diameter, how fast you should be turning it if you're using a high-speed steel tool, how fast you should be turning it if you're using a carbide tool. And it has all of that information there uh, so that you don't have to guess at any of this. Um, it gets more complex when you start getting into milling operations because milling operations have a lot of other variables that are involved that uh, that lathes just don't have. Um, but when it comes to turning, you can easily go through those charts and figure out exactly what sorts of s speeds you should be turning your piece at different diameters and also how fast you should be moving the cutter um, because I suspect a lot of people probably move their cutters too slow as well in a lot of cases to get uh, a really good finish on, uh, on the part. Usually not the best option when it comes to uh, improving the way that you're cutting on a lathe. Yeah, Daniels touches on speeds a little bit, but not very deeply. So that book is, is indispensable for, for this sort of information. And I suspect Daniels probably doesn't cover it because he had so much experience doing this by hand over years, and he just didn't think about it anymore. Yeah, it just developed an intuition. Exactly. And and somebody somebody sat over his shoulder saying, oh, no, you're not going fast enough. You need to turn up the speed. And and so he learned it through through you know trial and error and having somebody sort of stand over his shoulder and and teach him that. For if you've never had that that sort of experience, if you haven't had somebody who's an experienced turner helping you out, you're not necessarily going to get that uh, that encouragement to go faster. And uh, it's sort of like riding a bicycle, right? If you try and go too slow on a bicycle, it's really difficult to ride it. But the moment you you get over that critical speed, it actually becomes significantly easier to ride a bicycle. And it's the same kind of thing with a lathe. You really need to be going at the right speed. And if you're going too slow, it's going to be a miserable experience. So another aspect that he, he touches on, I think is important, is actually sharpening and preparing the gravers. But it is going to be a different mm. ballgame when working with carbide versus high-carbon steel or, or high-speed steel. I have a, a series of diamond hones that, that I rely on. Uh, all of them made by DMT, and then I will, off, depending on the operation, finish with a, a ruby stone that is, is very, very fine. You know, I said earlier, I think that uh, sort of 90% of machining is work holding. Uh, the other 10% of machining is uh, sharpening your tools. Sharpening your tools properly, especially lathe tools, is really, really critical. If you don't have the correct angles on your tooling, it, it can cause a lot of problems. You're not going to get the correct cutting action. Uh, this is particularly challenging if you're trying to use a hand graver and you're cutting by hand because you can have a properly shaped graver and you're just not presenting it to the workpiece properly. So that's, that's a significant challenge and it's one of the reasons why I don't recommend most people start with using a hand graver, particularly if you're trying to cut something accurately. It's a different story if you're trying to turn, let's say, the outside of a case and you're just trying to put a nice radius on something. Uh, that that's a perfect place to try doing some hand turning at first. But I think for most people, you're better off starting off with a lathe that has a compound slide on it. So it's um, uh, different slides that move using little hand cranks that you can turn accurately. And then there's a tool post holder, which you hold the tool itself in, and it's going to hold it rigidly. Uh, if you use something like a quick change tool post, you can put the tool back into the lathe in exactly the same way each and every time. So it's going to present the tool to the part in exactly the same way every time, which means that you're going to be able to experience the same thing you know, each time you go back to the lathe and you'll have a better feel of what's going on because it's you don't have as many variables as you would with hand turning. So uh, it's it's... Sharpening cutters is something that I could spend hours and hours and hours talking about. I'm not going to here because it's audio is not really a great medium for talking about sharpening tools for lathes. I can uh, look up a couple of interesting videos from uh, some YouTubers who do machining at a larger scale who talk about this sort of thing. It, it'll give you a better understanding of why you want to have lathe tools shaped in certain ways 
but it is important that you learn how to polish and sharpen your tools appropriately. Otherwise, you're just never going to get good results out of them. Uh, no matter how how nice your lathe is, uh, you're, you're just never going to get uh, get good results out of them. Daniels closes out the section on lathes by diving into all the myriad ways to, to hold uh, the piece that you're working on in the lathe using a variety of different chucks and, and how to make sure that, that those are accurately centered. And given that you've, you've brought up some YouTube videos uh, here, uh, I'm reminded of one you, you sent me, it's got to be a few years ago now, uh, but I know the answer to this question already, but, I, but I'm going to ask it just for, for the purposes of conversation. If you could have only one chuck, what would that chuck be? Absolutely have to be a four-jaw chuck. There's no better chuck no better chuck option out there. I would give up pullets for, uh, I would give up uh, a wax chuck, three-jaw chuck, all those things I would give up in a heartbeat and I would use a four-jaw chuck any day of the week. It is the only chuck which you can uh, guarantee is going to be accurate all the time. So I would uh, I would absolutely, if I could only have one chuck, it would be a four-jaw chuck without any, I don't even have to think about that. And with that accuracy comes a, a higher degree of skill because it is, for a novice, easier to center something in, in say, a three-jaw check than it is in a, a four-jaw check. Well, you say that, but it's but I, I would argue that you haven't actually centered it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no three-jaw chuck is accurate. That's the problem. It, it, even the most expensive three-jaw chuck is, is always going to be out. And I can set a four-jaw chuck more accurate. I can set a cheap four-jaw chuck more accurately than an expensive three-jaw chuck will. <laughs> so we'll put a video to, if I remember correctly, the video that you're you're thinking of from uh, YouTube that I sent you a while back was um, from the Bar Z Bash a few years ago. And there was a, a couple of machinists there who, the, the Bar Z Bash is a meetup that happens in Southern California every year. And it's a lot of uh, YouTubers who are into machining who tend to get together and, and some of the, the fans. And uh, there was a, competition between a couple of the these experienced machinists who could set up a four-jaw chuck or a part in a four-jaw chuck uh, as fast as possible and as accurately as possible and they actually did uh, one of the guys built a custom lathe so they could do a head-to-head match between the two of them it is impressive they the the guys who are in there are really really good and they are much better than I am. I, I can accurately set up a four-jaw chuck, but nowhere near as fast as these guys can. They are so good at what they do. Uh, but they do this, you know, they do this 10 hours a day, every day, and they've been doing it for 30 years. So it's not surprising that they're as fast as, as they are. But yeah, if you can only have one chuck, the four-jaw chuck is the one to go with. Now, there are myriad different chucks that, that we could touch on, but uh, again, we probably spend a, a whole episode or a series of episodes just on, on chucks. So I think the only other aspect of this particular section of the book worth pulling out here for the purposes of this discussion is the centering in the the chuck, which once you have that four-jaw chuck perfectly centered, or if you've got a piece perfectly centered on a wax chuck, you want to be able to check and ensure that it is indeed perfectly centered. And there are essentially two ways that Daniels recommends going about this. One of them is, is very rudimentary, but incredibly accurate. Uh, and the other involves a scope, which uh, is quite a bit more involved, quite a bit more expensive to do, and actually may not be able to yield as much of a guarantee of concentricity as his much simpler method, which he refers to as using a wobble stick. Mm-hmm. So how would you describe a, a wobble stick, Chris? Yeah, a wobble stick is taking advantage of leverage. And you're creating a lever with the pivot point very close to the workpiece. And then the other end of the lever is very far away from the workpiece. And because of that, you're getting an exaggerated motion at the long end of that, uh, that lever. And as the workpiece turns around what you think is the center, that wobble stick will wobble up and down and give you a, an indication as to just how true that particular hole is in the part, if that's what you're trying to, to line up and get centered. Uh, if you learn how to use one well, they are extremely accurate, and um, you, can, you can set up parts. Uh, you can set up a centered part or a centered hole on a part uh, very, very accurately using one of these wobble sticks. 
I have to say they are a bit of a nightmare to learn how to use initially and uh, maybe not something that I would recommend for most beginners, but uh, they are certainly incredibly accurate and just so so wonderfully simple. Um, like it's, a, it's sort of an elegantly simple design and, uh, and worth using. Uh, the scope that he recommends using, uh, this is typically something that's held in the tailstock so that you know that it's centered on the tailstock of the part. Even if it's off just slightly, there are actually ways of using a scope properly so that even if it's not completely lined up, uh, you can still use it for uh, accurately lining up a part in the headstock as well. So uh, a scope is certainly a good option. Uh, they're certainly not as inexpensive as a wobble stick because you could build a wobble stick yourself out of very inexpensive materials for not a lot of money. Uh, a scope is something you can build yourself, but it's um, it's certainly more expensive and it's uh, a bit more of a pain to get. Yeah, you could literally make yourself a wobble stick for the price of a bag of peanuts. Oh yeah, yeah, they're uh, you can you often have parts sitting around that are that are going to work fine for building a wobble stick. So uh, if you can if you can figure out how to use a wobble stick, I highly recommend it. They're they're extremely uh, elegant solution to this problem, and um, and certainly worth worth trying out. Uh, the other way that I've done this as well is little uh, centering lasers. Uh, you can I, I did have a little centering laser for my mill at one point uh, that um, that projected a little crosshair onto um, onto the part and uh, that can be used as well similar to a centering scope for uh, for doing this kind of work as well so there are a couple of different options out there and uh, depending on what you're most comfortable with uh, it is important to be able to learn how to not only make something run completely concentric in the chuck but also be able to pick up a feature on a part so for instance on a main plate you might want to pick up a hole that will eventually become the pivot for something. And you may need to be able to, to turn a recess based around that hole. And so you need to be able to pick up that particular feature accurately and then be able to turn to that, uh, that feature. So it is important if you're going to get into making other parts for a watch that aren't just completely uh, circular and concentric, you may need to to learn how to pick up uh, these features in uh, in other ways, something that isn't completely centered on the lathe itself. That's that's interesting. How fine is is the the laser on your your tailstock? I have something like that on, on one of my drill presses, as well as on, on a, an engraving machine. But I wouldn't trust either of those for the the degree that I'm working at on a, on a watchmaker's lathe. No, this is much finer than the uh, than what you're looking at there. Um, in this case, uh, the one that I tend to use was a, um, was one that rotated in the headstock of my lay or my mill. It was just a very fine dot and it probably wouldn't be fine enough. I probably wouldn't use it for picking up something like the center of a jewel hole or something like that. Like I, I think I would still rather use other options for it. But if you're looking for something that's fast and doesn't necessarily require the level of accuracy of you know again picking up something like a something like a jewel hole you know if it could be off by a couple hundredths of a millimeter or whatever it might be something that's worth looking at but um uh, again it, there, there are different options out there depending on what you're looking for and depending on the level of accuracy that you're working at and, and i think that's something that's worth mentioning when it comes to all of this stuff you can keep working at increasing levels of accuracy no matter what it is that you're doing. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, my large lathe is not nearly as accurate. Uh, you know, my large South Bend lathe is not nearly as accurate as my Cromwell. It's not as accurate as my Derbyshire lathe. And that's fine because you don't always want to be turning down to micron tolerances. If you tried mach machining everything that you make down to the same tolerances that you would make the pivots on a balance staff to, then it's going to take you forever to make a part. And it's not going to be any better than the part would be if you turned it to an appropriate tolerance. In a lot of cases, the stuff that I'm turning on my South Bend lathe, if it's, you know, if it's to within a thousandth of an inch of what it needs to be, then that's probably going to be okay for most of the parts that are, that are there. 
And I can quickly and easily turn any part to a thousandth of an inch tolerance on my South Bend lathe all day, every day, without even thinking about it. I can do it quickly and accurately. Um, as you start getting more accurate than that, you then need to take more time. You have more considerations. Things like heat buildup in the part is going to affect those, you know, how accurate that, that part is. So, you know, if, if it's something that doesn't need to be that accurate, then don't try turning it to that level of accuracy. You're just spending a lot of time doing something you don't need to be doing. So a lot of parts on a watch case, for instance, do not need to be turned to the same level of accuracy as the parts inside of the mechanism itself. So don't don't fall into the trap of over-tolerancing the things that you're making. If they don't need it, don't turn it to that level. Mm-hmm. That's another great point that Daniels brings up when discussing the wobble stick as well. And that if you you follow the if you follow his guidelines for how to make a wobble stick, he actually also lays out the math to determine just how far out you are. And if you are you still have some wobble evident in the stick, but you hold a ruler up to it, you can actually measure very accurately just how much you're out by. And if it turns out that you're well within your tolerances, then just go ahead and start machining. Don't 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 waste the unnecessary effort. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I was talking about using a four jaw chuck, one of the reasons why, uh, you know, for the first five or six years that I was turning, all I had was a four jaw chuck. I didn't actually have anything else. And the reason why I could quickly and easily use it was because I knew exactly when I needed to spend the time to get it, get a part in, in that four jaw chuck, absolutely bang on accurate. And most of the time I didn't, most of the time it could be close to, it could be within a thousandth of an inch of concentricity, and it didn't matter. Uh, When I did need to get tighter tolerances than that, then I worked for an extra minute to get that extra extra accuracy. Uh, But that extra accuracy also requires more accurate measuring equipment because you needed, you know, I needed a dial indicator that could handle, um, you know, presenting a, a finer resolution than what I needed to be able to set it to a thousandth of an inch concentricity. So every step up in accuracy also requires, uh, you know, not only does it require more time, it requires more expensive tools for being able to measure it. And, um, and the prices go up exponentially as you start going into tighter and tighter tolerances. Same thing with lathes. A lathe that is, um, you know, is good for thousandth of an inch accuracy, going up to a tenth of a thousandth of an inch accuracy you're looking at a, a significant price jump. So we did touch briefly on just how expensive buying a brand new lathe can be. And, and while that may be worth more than its weight in gold, it's not always the, the feasible route for, for someone. Now, given your, your vast experience in, in purchasing lathes, you never seem to have enough of them. What uh, tips would, would you offer to someone who is looking at, at buying their first lathe? Um, so buying, buying a good lathe is challenging. And if you have no experience with lathes, with using lathes, you certainly want to try and find somebody who has some experience with lathes before you, uh, before you sort of go out and try buying them. If you're looking at sort of a new lathe, if you can justify buying a new lathe, there are some really nice new lathes out of the market for watchmakers that, uh, that I like, uh, something like the Cowles lathe, uh, that's made out of the UK. Uh, that's a really, really nice lathe. Uh, there was another one that I saw recently. It was being made in China and then finished in Germany. can't remember the name of it. Vector is one. The Vector, that's the one that I was thinking of. So if, if you're buying a quality lathe that's brand new like that, you know, you don't need somebody to to sort of help you with that. That That's pretty obvious. Now, you are paying a premium for that because it is a, a brand new lathe. But uh, something like that, it, it's worth... It's worth investing in. If you've got the money, buy a nice lathe brand new. If you're going to buy a used lathe, then you really do have to be careful. Now, remember that the reason that somebody's giving up this lathe is either because it's not worth it for them to own anymore, or, you know, in the case of the lathes, for instance, that you've bought, John, you've bought them from watchmakers who've been using them as part of their career, and they may be quite worn by the time you get a hold of it. So, if you if you're going to buy a used lathe, do not buy it sight unseen. Uh, you actually want to get your hands on it and um, and check it out before you buy it for sure. 
And if you don't have experience with lathes, I recommend bringing somebody along with you who does have experience with lathes. Uh, things you want to look out for, things like uh, worn headstocks, um, you know, so you can you can feel, in a lot of cases, you can feel a headstock and you can tell whether it's sort of grinding or not, whether it runs smooth. Uh, if you have a chance to use it, that's also worthwhile. Uh, but again, if you don't have a lot of experience with a lathe, that's where it's it's difficult to sort of test it out and, and know that it's working well. Uh, I'm quite fortunate. I've got uh, a quality used tool dealer nearby that I can talk to. Uh, Jason at Carden Tools is outstanding with this sort of thing. Now, he doesn't have sort of consistent pieces that come in all the time, so it's sort of catch as catch can. But I have enough experience now with lathes that I can go in there. I can check it out. I can... You know, I can sort of feel the headstock. I can work on the on the piece a little bit, on the on the lathe a little bit, and I can tell whether or not it's something that's worth buying. Uh, so definitely don't buy it sight unseen. Uh, it's eBay looks like a great place to buy lathes, but yeah, if you don't know what you're what you're looking for, yeah, it's is eBay a good place to buy anything? Come on, no, no, it isn't anymore. It's uh, it's a horrible place to buy things. So yeah, it's um. If it's your first lathe, don't don't spend. Try not to spend all your money on it. Um, you'll learn a lot with the first lathe, and um, you'll learn a lot of the things that you do want and you don't want in your next lathe. You know, if you can afford to, to if you can easily afford to buy something like a fully outfitted cowls or something like that, then go for it. Uh, you won't go wrong with something like that. But if you're on a budget, uh, be careful about what you're buying. Uh, it you really do get what you pay for when it comes to lathes and. Uh, it's worth it's worth being cautious when you go out and buy them. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand.